Welcome back to the program. We've all heard the expression, you are what you eat. Yet when we think about some of the things we consume every day, the fast food, the junk food, the endless meals out assembled with unknown ingredients, perhaps it's no surprise that we have an obesity epidemic and that so many public health issues could be traced back to what we eat. On the other side is a vast food and hospitality complex that understands food addiction, the impacts of sugar and fats, and spends billions of dollars each year trying to get us hooked. But the news isn't all bad. There are also foods that protect us from disease and really do improve our health. What all of this tells us is that beyond that simple nutrition class you might have taken, a lesson in biology and chemistry might also be helpful. Or we can learn from our guest, Dr. Gary Wink. Gary Wank is a professor of psychology and neuroscience and molecular virology and immunology and medical genetics at Ohio State University and Medical Center. He's a leading authority on the consequences of chronic brain inflammation and Alzheimer's disease. And he's the author of the book, Your Brain on Food, How Chemicals Control Your Thoughts and Feelings. It's just been updated, and it is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Gary Wank to the program. Gary, thanks so much for joining us. My great pleasure. Thank you for having me. Why has it taken us so long to really begin to understand and appreciate the chemical reactions that food creates within the body? In some ways, it's kind of counterintuitive. It seems like we should have realized these things a long time ago. It does. For as long as we've been eating, you'd think we'd be experts on it by now. Um, a lot of it has to do with the fact that we didn't even recognize that it was important. Um, we paid attention to things that turned out not to be important. And some of those have just been sort of... Uh, unveiled in the uh, recent popular press about, say, cholesterol versus, uh, you know, um, saturated fats. Uh, so I think what, the issue is that we've never paid that much attention to the things that we're eating. We just assume, well, it's natural, it must be safe. I hear that so often. Um, and that was actually the point of my book, was I wanted to uh, make what seems like an obvious point, that foods are drugs and they're both just chemicals. Uh, they have good and bad effects. Uh, we all have this experience. We kind of know it intuitively. But so often people treat um, you know, drugs in a very cavalier fashion, and they don't treat their foods sufficiently seriously. So um, the point was being let's treat them both identically seriously. Um, people are careful about what they buy. In fact, sometimes when they go to a drugstore, you know, people are very cautious about reading labels and trying to avoid the side effects, whatever they might be but care a lot less about their food. This is the main point. I think we've just never paid attention to the consequences on our health, especially brain health, of the things we consume. And we're catching up to that now. And yet it's interesting that we've understood certain basic reactions. We know that coffee and or caffeine perks us up when we need to. We know the impact of that late afternoon candy bar. We know if we eat you know, too big a pasta dinner, we're going to be sleepy after dinner. We understand the fundamentals, but we never really scratch deeper than that. That's true. And I, I think now we're actually scratching so deep that we're beginning to see things that uh, are surprising us. Um, let's take, well, uh, coffee, for example. I, you know, I teach a course on psychopharmacology to undergraduates in a psychology course. And so uh, the, the real purpose of the course and my book isn't so much to explain about how these things affect the brain and body, but to teach us something about how our brain works. Uh, so when you look, as you just said, at the effects of eating a, a you know, pasta meal, and why do I feel lethargic? Um, when somebody goes to eat a fast food cheeseburger, why after about an hour 
Do they have trouble concentrating? Or why on earth are we so drowsy in the morning that we eat cookie, uh, coffee and donuts? Uh, you know, these things are all, it turns out, related, and we're beginning to unpack the underlying mechanisms of them. Uh, let me give, this, this may sound a bit technical, but let me give an explanation for something everyone does, uh, and that would be donuts and coffee. Um, and it, the simple way to begin is that you need to recognize sometimes our brain asks us to do things that our body would prefer we didn't do, and who hasn't been there? Um, but, you know, in the early morning hours before we all woke up, you know, this morning we were busy dreaming, and our dreaming uses up a lot of a neurotransmitter called acetylcholine. And as we dream, our brain's very active, and it uses up molecules of ATP. Everybody heard about that in high school biology. And as we burn up that ATP, the A, adenosine, debris, builds up. And so here we are. We wake up in the morning, and our brains are full of adenosine debris uh, from all that neural activity of dreaming. We've ran out, or at least at very low levels of acetylcholine, and we need to go get both of them. So what our brain does is it says, huh, I need some acetyl. I'm going to get that from sugar. And the choline comes from lecithin, baked goods, and so forth. So the perfect item is a donut, it turns out. Uh, our brain consumes the equivalent of 12 donuts worth of sugar and choline every day just to function. That's a lot of donuts. Um, in addition, we'd like to get rid of all that adenosine or antagonize it. And the best thing out there in the market to do that, it turns out, is caffeine. So here we are in the morning. We're driving to work. We're drowsy. Uh, we've just been busy dreaming all morning. And the two most optimal things that we can buy, fortunately, are easy access to it, coffee and donuts. So here's our brain saying, this is what I want. If, if you're expecting me to function normally and learn and remember and pay attention, you better give me what I need. And so, therefore, what we find is that there are Dunkin' Donuts and Tim Hortons and Starbucks scattered around our way to work, and they're there for a reason. Our brain wants them to be there. It takes us to them. People are driven to these items because it needs it. Now, does your body want you to, to stay you know, in 12 donuts? No. Um, but it's what the brain wants. So as we begin to understand the, the underlying neurobiology, some of our crazier behaviors begin to make some sense. And we understand why we crave these things. And craving's a good term because we now appreciate the fact that our addiction to donuts or sugar or fat and salt involves the same neurotransmitter system, the same neural system in the brain as does an addiction to cocaine or heroin. And it's just as hard to kick. So as we understand that, we can take away some of the blame for people and say, you know, if you compare yourself to a heroin addict, we know how hard it is to give up heroin. This is why controlling your diet is so very hard. This is where we're going now. We're using bit by bit our, you know, advancing knowledge about what foods do to the brain and what the brain wants us to do in return to get more of fat, salt, and sugar. Um, we can appreciate how challenging it's going to be to control those urges and maybe approach them as seriously as we approach the, you know, the treatment of heroin addiction. I want to talk about this disconnect between what the brain wants in terms of these addictions and our knowing, our body knowing and us knowing intellectually that it is arguably bad for us in terms of the long run and the big picture of our health and what we're beginning to understand about this disconnect as a way into trying to deal with some of these addictions, both as they may be drug-related or food-related. 
You know, that's, wow, uh, that is a profoundly important question to answer. And we're only beginning to scratch the surface to understand uh, what it is that drives us uh, to a certain drug or to a certain nutrient. You know, um, one thing about dealing with heroin addiction is that you can simply avoid the heroin. Uh, you can avoid the molecule, uh, avoid the lifestyle, but it's nearly impossible uh, to do the same with, with diet. We must eat to survive. So it's almost like in order to survive, a heroin addict is told you must have a, just a tiny amount of heroin every day. Um, well, you can imagine how hard it would be to knock that habit. Um, that's what makes um, controlling our diet so very difficult. Our brain evolved um, some rules, and those rules are whenever you find palatable food, eat it to completion because we don't know when we're going to find food again. And fat, salt, and sugar occur very rarely in nature, naturally, um, so that uh, if we ever stumbled onto them, our brains rewarded us for eating them. You know, it released endogenous molecules, you know, that produce a bit of euphoria to say, thank you, go get some more, um, because we need fat, salt, and sugar uh, for our survival. They're great sources of, you know, uh, fat, certainly for energy. So the problem, the basis of fixing this problem uh, is involves correcting um, the last, you know, million years of evolution uh, of how our brain and bodies interact with each other. It probably goes back even further than that. Um, that's the challenge. Once, uh, about three or four years ago, someone discovered that uh, uh, when they smoke marijuana, they get the munchies. Well, uh, a very intelligent scientist decided to invent a drug uh, that was the anti-munchie drug. It would prevent you from feeling that you needed to eat. Uh, it turned out this was an incredibly successful uh, chemical. It was it made it all the way to phase three trials, and it did one thing: it blocked the munchies in our brains due to our brain's endogenous marijuana system. And people were losing weight. They they gave up alcohol. They stopped you know smoking cigarettes. They became much healthier. They demanded the pill. Even the group on the placebo control wing of uh, <laughs> this. Um, so it was an amazing compound. But as the studies progressed, it taught us something very important about our brains and our brain's endogenous marijuana system. That lesson led to us understanding that we cannot block our brain's endogenous marijuana system 24 hours a day, seven days a week without consequences. And that consequence was suicide. These very healthy people who were losing weight, giving up their addiction, started committing suicide in significant numbers. Uh, so Every time we seem to find a way to correct um, the control of diet and eating uh, and craving of chemicals, be they drugs or foods, we end up inducing an imbalance that has just terrible consequences. So we're trying to make inroads to it. As we learn more about what controls the craving for certain foods and so forth, we make attempts, but sometimes they fail in really spectacular ways. That drug was removed from the market last May, so it's never going to see the light of day. And it cost the company, a French drug company, millions of dollars to get to that point. But we learned something. So that was the point of my book. You can learn about how your brain functions by examining how drugs, foods affect you. Um, and, you know, sort of back-engineer, well, what's going on in the brain to explain this? Um, but at the moment, you know, your question remains unanswered. We are way too ignorant still. As we move along and continue to look at this and realize the evolutionary component that you were talking about before, 
is there a way into this through genetics? We all know the stories about babies or kids that start to grow up and that maybe aren't exposed to some of these things in, in large quantity and really grow up without a taste necessarily for fats and sugars and salt. What do we learn from that in terms of genetic manipulation as a way to begin to deal with this? Actually, I think you've raised one of the most important and potentially one of the most promising areas of research. Uh, there's two. Uh, I'll mention the other one in a moment. But um, we're beginning to appreciate the genetics of obesity more and more. We thought we had a handle on it, and then some new things appeared, and we're beginning to now understand that obesity may be inherited. Uh, it may also be due, as you mentioned, to other factors, sort of lifestyle factors, uh, the individuals you grow up with. Uh, but we know from twin studies that genetics play a huge role in determining who's going to be obese. And there are significant gender differences that uh, we now appreciate from examining uh, extremely obese men and women that how women respond to the, to the image of high-caloric foods uh, is quite different than how men respond to it. Uh, so we're beginning to make inroads there of what parts of the brain are important. But in addition, recently um, we've begun to pay attention to our uh, body's microbiome, the bugs that live with us. Um, we've known they've been there for over a century. Um, in fact, the first person who identified it ended up winning the Nobel Prize um, because he, he identified the importance of all these bugs. But I don't think he or anyone realized how many of them there were. Um, there's a 100 trillion bugs living in us, and there's only about 100 billion human cells, maybe 70 billion human cells. You know, human cells are bigger, so when you look in the mirror, you don't see the bugs, but there's anywhere from 100 to 1,000 times more of them in you. So I'd like to point out, and I did that in the book, that every time you eat something, the bugs eat first. If you take a pill, the bugs get the medication first, and that's a good thing um, overall, usually. So 80% of all the proteins floating around in our, our body, our blood, uh, are made by these bugs who cohabitate with us. Without them, we would die. But they influence many aspects of our health, including mental health and obesity, um, and whether or not we develop a metabolic syndrome or diabetes. We're just beginning to understand what they're doing, and it's awesomely complicated. And every time we look at the, the biome of individuals, we notice that, that it varies, and it begins now, I think, to tell a story that explains why one person tends to be more anxious or depressed and another person leans toward obesity. Um, and when that balance um, is uh, disturbed, say, by an infection uh, or a peculiar diet, um, there are actually discussions now of giving fecal transplants where you, <laughs> you, you, you can tell what's going on, uh, where you replace a person's um, biome in their gut to sort of make it healthier. Um, and some people are speculating that that might be a cure for many diseases, including diabetes, uh, Crohn's disease, uh, inflammatory bowel disease, irritable bowel disease. Uh, so we're beginning to understand the importance of all these creatures that live with us and their, the critical role they play in keeping us mentally healthy and physically healthy. So that's what's going to happen in the future. We're going to manipulate the genetics and we're going to manipulate the bugs and hopefully, um, you know, at least we'll make some mistakes along the way, but we'll begin to understand how to you know, provide people with healthier lives. We've seen some examples of this with people, for example, that have lap band surgery that suddenly are cured of type 2 diabetes, and we're, we don't seem to be clear why that is. 
That's true. You know, um, I've seen some reports on that lately to try and understand what's going on because you are distorting the gut uh, biome for a brief time. Um, unfortunately, with those um, procedures, most people, after a while, the gut biome readjusts mm-hmm. at about the same time that those individuals, most of the individuals, not all, but most of the individuals start regaining their weight. People are revisiting this sort of old hypothesis from 50 years ago about set points. We used to think set points were determined by your brain. Now we're beginning to wonder if they're really determined by these bugs. Um, And, you know, they sculpt us and our chemistry so that they have the environment they want. You know, from their standpoint, we're just a carrier for them. Um, You know, for the most part, they don't pay much attention to us. They have their own little battles going on every day. Um, half of all the bacteria in your body are killed by all the viruses living next door to them. So it's a war zone in there, <laughs> and they need to maintain, you know, uh, a sort of a level playing field, you might imagine. So what we're finding is that when people have these surgeries, for a while they lose weight, but then too frequently um, after, say, a lap band or um, uh, liposuction surgeries, people tend to gain the weight back. Um, and we think it might have less to do with, you know, the, their mental control over their behavior and more to do with, with what these 100 trillion animals inside their body are telling them to do. That's a complicated problem to solve, and we don't even understand it completely yet. So we can't just go in there and start, you know, uh, killing bugs willy-nilly. It's going to have to be more informed than that. Uh, but that will be another manipulation of the future to help these people out. The other manipulation that, of course, is the overlay to, I suppose, all of this is the way in which food, whether it's good food or junk food, is marketed to us and the way that contributes to and plays into what our addictions and cravings might be, no matter how much we think we want to resist. Well, that's a good point. When, you know, when we see something, we do want it. Uh, actually, some studies have been published recently where they... Uh, um, rather than looking at marketing, they simply test to see how people behave when food, palatable food, is placed in front of them. Uh, and sometimes people are placed in PET scanners to monitor what types, you know, what brain regions are active. We're beginning to understand the rules uh, that advertisers have been manipulating uh, us. Uh, even if they don't understand what they're doing, they know it works. Uh, one thing that we tend to do is that we, we will be drawn to palatable foods. Um, so the old buffet line where you're standing there um, and the advice is always, you know, don't stand next to the food, don't stand next to the food tray or the table at the, you know, wedding reception. Uh, get away from it because if you see it, uh, you will want it. Um, that's just how we, our brains evolved and advertisers know that. So they show, you know, the juicy looking meals and, you know, everything's very appetizing and so forth. But what the most astonishing thing in these studies isn't that we're drawn to it or that we'll finish to completion anything that looks good. But it's more complicated. If you are eating with someone, uh, and most people do, I mean, we're always shown on the commercials that people are eating together. You never see people enjoying a meal alone on a commercial. It turns out that if someone's there and there's palatable food in front of you, um, you will eat it ahead of them, even if you're not hungry. And the study took it a step further to show that even if the food isn't particularly palatable, if there's flies sitting on it or if it looks a bit green or a little dried out or it's mayonnaise and it's been there for hours, people will still eat it to defend food sources. We have this built-in evolutionary sort of drive to not only 
finish a meal to completion. Uh, and if it's a buffet, that's a big meal. Uh, but also we need to defend our food sources from even loved ones. If, if there's a chance, they might eat it ahead of you. It's an astonishing behavior that, that evolved in us for survival. So, and everything comes back to that. We have one purpose, and our brain and gut is designed to simply make more bodies, offspring, and then survive. And eating food to completion, eating and defending food sources from others is part of those rules. Uh, so, you know, the ad agencies, whether they know it or not, take advantage of those very behaviors um, that are so deeply ingrained in us. And the interesting thing is that we've jumped on that bandwagon. If you look on Facebook or Twitter or Pinterest or Instagram, the the number of people that are posting pictures of food and trying to make them as beautiful as possible creates a kind of food porn environment that we respond to. It does, doesn't it? You know, um, you know the interesting thing about the, the people who are so addicted to food, the foodies, uh, the people who post those, is um, I get a lot of pushback on one comment I made in the book, which is that um, we become addicted to food in the same way we become addicted to heroin and cocaine. Uh, foodies hate that line because they hate to see food compared to those dirty drugs. And I think that's your point. Um, we tend to see food as natural and healthy. And, um, you know, it, it should be held on a, on a beautiful pedestal and presented to us in colorful, you know, brilliant ways. Um, that's how food is brought to us. And drugs, those are dirty and harmful and dangerous. Um, so foodies really don't like this comparison. Um, but I think you're right. People really do see food. They, they admire food. They idolize food. Uh, they think about it. Um, and so much so that what I do with my students is I, I tell them if they want to imagine what it's like to be a heroin addict, who's ran out of heroin and money and you're craving heroin, just stop eating for the rest of the day and see what you're thinking about by 10 o'clock or midnight tonight. You know, you won't have a single thought that isn't focusing on something that you can eat. We're driven to it. This is how our brain evolved. It's survival. Um, and, you know, the commercials, uh, you know, they speak to that, they feed right into that, and people who post these pictures are just demonstrating to us if they had a, a syringe full of cocaine, they might put that up on pin interest if that was your addiction. Uh, I don't really see or make a distinction between food and drugs. Uh, the way our brain responds to them, they're all just molecules, chemicals. They have good things we want, bad things we want, and we tolerate. And with all fairness, we should also talk about the good parts of all of this, the foods with antioxidants or omega-3s or B vitamins, <laughs> foods that really are, are positive in terms of the impact that they have on our bodies. Right, you know, I'm, and I make this statement strongly in the book, I'm, I'm completely, you know, against supplements. Uh, generally, they, they've been shown, at least in the past 10 years now, to be useless for most people. There's a saying that Americans have the most expensive urine in the world, and that's why uh, most of the stuff we don't absorb anyway. Um, unless you absolutely need a particular item, say, as you get older, you might need B12 or uh, vitamin D, if you happen to live in Ohio, where I'm from, and there's never any sunshine. Um, but in general, if you don't need it, uh, don't take the supplement. If, you, if there are things you're allergic to, avoid them, like gluten. But other than that, um, I'm an omnivore. Um, my approach is, you know, try a little of everything. But um, so, so, right, we're, do these things help? Well, you mentioned some specifics. Let's deal with those. Uh, Omega-3s. Um, it turns out that uh, omega-3 is not an antidepressant. However, 
if you are depressed and you are taking an antidepressant drug, uh, some recent studies have shown that omega-3s may help your medications work better. Now, that doesn't mean taking omega-3s is going to treat depression, but it means there's an interaction between these molecules that you might benefit from. So, you know, the problem is that people hear that and they say, well, geez, all they need is omega-3. No, that it doesn't work that way. Um, also, we're very, our brains are very vulnerable to deficiencies. So if we stopped eating tryptophan, within about eight hours, we would notice that serotonin levels in our brain would begin to fall. We might start feeling anxious, a little irritable, maybe a little depressed. And so we've discovered from that that our brain does not store these things very long. It needs a constant resupply of all these various vitamins and nutrients, which is why we eat three or four times a day. Um, so what people have done is they thought, well, wow, if tryptophan makes me feel less anxious and irritable and depressed when it's depleted from my body, then why don't I just eat a lot of it and I'll feel happy and it'll be an antidepressant. No, it doesn't work that way. Our brain responds to deficiencies of these things. It doesn't respond to surpluses. So all it does is if you, if you offer the brain a bunch of tryptophan, it, most of it never gets across the blood-brain barrier. What little does may be converted into serotonin, but it was simply destroyed. Uh, it's not released. Um, so we, we leap to conclusions that, that if it works one way, it must work the other. Uh, and the brain doesn't do that. Uh, it, it's just the property of the fact of how this organ evolved. It needs a constant source of things. But if it has too much, it discards it or destroys uh, chemicals it doesn't want. So you have to be very careful when you look at what people are offering you, you know, uh, health food stores and herbalists. Uh, does your brain really need it? Are you depleted from it? Do you lack it? Do you have a problem absorbing it? Uh, if, if those are the cases, if you have some problem, then it's a good idea to get a supplement. However, the dogma now is that it's best to get your supplements from the natural sources. So if you need vitamin E, eat some peanuts or some, you know, some metals, peanuts are good for that, or uh, if you need a particular item, you know, in your diet, then get it from its natural source. The reason is that these things occur uh, as a complex blend of chemicals, uh, and it's that blend, the aggregate effect of the blend that, that our brain needs. Let me give you another example. Uh, I've heard from many women in particular who, who develop what's called chocolate anger. Most people never experience that. But if you have a genetic vulnerability and you eat some chocolate, you become extremely aggressive and angry, and some individuals have told me they've almost lost their jobs. So chocolate is a great example of a food that's also a drug for some people. But it makes a wonderful example um, of a bigger sort of point, which is that all these chemicals, the drugs, the foods we consume, always interact not just with the bugs in us, but also with our genome. And so people often ask me, am, am I going to become ill, psychotic if I take this drug X? And the answer is, well, it depends on your genome. Uh, are you vulnerable? And oftentimes we don't have the answer for that. Uh, one of the most common questions I get is from my undergraduates is, if I smoke marijuana, am I going to become psychotic? Well, if you carry a gene that predisposes you to psychosis, there's a good chance that smoking marijuana might unmask that disorder. But if you don't carry the gene, there's, as far as we can tell, there is no risk of getting psychosis from smoking marijuana. However, how does a person know whether they have a genetic vulnerability? Um, there are no specific genes that predict 
schizophrenia. Not yet. People are working on that. So it's sort of genetic roulette with your drug. Um, go ahead. We can't tell you what's going to happen to you, but as a population, this is all we know. So this is where we are today. We're beginning to unpack the factors and answer a whole bunch of questions about how foods and drugs affect our brain and health uh, as we understand how the brain works. Dr. Gary Wink. The book is Your Brain on Food, How Chemicals Control Your Thoughts and Feelings, just out from Oxford University Press. Gary, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. My pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.